Uh, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Luke. We're in chapter 9. We're going to continue our series in the book of Luke. We're scheduled to be done with it in 2020. Um, it's, it's about when uh, SDA High School will be done with the next building. So um, <laughs> I think they've been working on it uh, as long as the book of Luke. So, but uh, yeah, so we are going to be there in just a moment. And through this story of the book of Luke, or the series, uh, this study of the book of Luke, I should say, is one thing, that, a theme that has come up, and especially in the last few weeks, is the author of this book, his name is Luke, as he's writing about the life of Jesus, he's reminding us of and, and pointing out the aspects of the life of Christ that, and, and the things that Jesus did that emphasized the fact that Jesus is God in flesh. That he was, as they thought of, of the Messiah, and that means the anointed one or the one sent by God to earth. Um, and so, and the, the purpose was to redeem and to restore a broken creation, a broken world. And so... Jesus, through a series of different events we've looked at in the last few weeks, kind of exercised and demonstrated that he was God. He exercised that he was God over the natural world. And then we saw the next week, God over the supernatural world. And then uh, we saw that even was God over the consequences of sin and death. So in every one of these stories, Jesus has emphasized and say, like, no, I am the one you've been waiting for. I am the creator of the universe now, son of God in flesh walking among you. And so the author of this book, of Luke, he wants us to, he's been really focusing on that. Now this week, there's, there's the end of a couple of series of miracles, and now we're going to turn to a point in which Jesus has a little teaching moment again with his disciples and wants to really up the ante of saying, okay, if this is who I am, then how shall we respond? So as we jump into today's story, would you pray with me as we get started? God, we thank you so much for today. I thank you. Uh, for the fact that you regard us. I thank you that even in our doubts, in our weaknesses, sometimes in our struggles, Lord, that you still think of us, you love us. And God, we want to be people today who can rest in that love and who can be transformed and changed because of what you have done. So we give you this time now and ask that as we look into your word, Lord, that uh, you would challenge us and change us and let it be all about you. In your name, amen. Before we look into the text here today, I, I, I was thinking this week of, this is a, a story where Jesus actually goes and he gives a high call of discipleship to his disciples. He says, this is what it looks like to follow me. And I was, I was thinking about that a little bit and thinking, what does it look like for each person to be a follower of Jesus? And there's a tendency to take that concept of being a follower of Jesus and make it uh, and to think that if it's not spectacular, if it's not extraordinary in your life, then maybe we're falling short. Or maybe we're not giving it all to God because sometimes when we think of following Jesus must be this most radical, crazy thing. And I think part of it is we live in a world where we all want to stand out. Now, you might, the introverts are like, no, I don't. I don't want to stand out. And I, I get that. But in the sense of we all want our lives to count. We all want them to matter. Everywhere we look, we're told that, hey, you have to make your mark. You have to make a big... I mean, just think of all the graduation speeches and things in the last couple of weeks, right? We have some recent graduates. It's always, go make your mark. Be something. And sometimes we think in Christianity, the call to follow Jesus is if we're not something spectacular, maybe that's not enough. In some ways, I think that we're afraid of living normal lives sometimes just changed by Jesus. In fact, recently I just read this article. It's in a very good news source called The Onion. <laughs> so if you don't know what The Onion is, it's satirical news. And so just know that as I go in. 
Um, so the Onion article says this. starts off and says, Longtime acquaintances confirmed to reporters this week that the local man, Michael Husmer, an unambitious 29-year-old loser who leads an enjoyable and fulfilling life, still lives in his hometown and still has no desire to leave. His former high school classmates confirmed that Husmer has embarrassing Facebook photos in which the smiling dud appears alongside family members whom he sees regularly and appreciates and enjoys long-lasting relationships with. Additionally, pointing to the intimate, enduring connections he's developed with his wife, parents, siblings, and neighbors, sources reported that Husmer's life is pretty humiliating on multiple levels. Former classmates also confirmed that he apparently is resigned to go into his little, small-time, stable, extremely fulfilling job in town every day and has zero ambitions to leave this position and pursue a more prestigious and soul-crushing career path in a real city. <laughs> it's almost like he's saying, I just want to be an emotionally stable husband and father who's not obsessed with climbing the corporate ladder and impressing complete strangers with my job title. <laughs> Husmer is choosing to coast through life by putting considerable time and effort into his rewarding marriage, playing an active role in his two children's lives, and being sincerely thankful for what he has. One of his friends says, I'm just glad I got out of there and did not end up like Mike. <laughs> the last thing I'd ever want is to have a loving family nearby, feel a sense of pleasure when reflecting on my life, and be the big failure that everyone runs into when they visit home once a year on the holidays. Just look at him with his contented grin and positive outlook day in and day out. That poor guy doesn't even know how bad he has it. <laughs> so I think sometimes when we think of life, we think if we don't have something spectacular, if our Instagram posts don't get enough pictures, maybe we should delete it and try a different angle. Or if on Facebook, why are friends not checking in and commenting on all my great things? Or maybe you're looking at everyone else's and saying, why when they go on vacation does it never rain? Or what, why? Because when I'm there for a week, it rained the whole time, and I didn't get any good angles on any of these photos. And, and so sometimes we live in this world where we think it has to be spectacular to matter. And this, mor this morning, we're going to look at a very challenging call that Jesus gives to his disciples. But I would argue today that instead of thinking about it in the terms of we need to then be spectacular, Jesus wants us to be ordinary people, living ordinary lives but be, we are extraordinary because of the work of Jesus and what he does in and through us. And so that is the call that we're going to look at today. A little different take on this passage. So Luke chapter 9, verse 18. Let's jump in. I'm going to read the whole passage and then we'll look at it. It starts off and says this in verse 18. And it happened that while Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with him and, they que and Jesus questioned his disciples saying, Who do the people say that I am? They answered and said, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others say that one of the prophets of old has risen again. And Jesus said to them, well, who do you say I am? And Peter answered and said, I say you are the Christ of God, the anointed one. But Jesus warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone. And then Jesus said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and then be killed and raised up on the third day. And as he was saying all this to them, he said, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he, 
is the one who will save it. For what is it man profited if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. But I say to you truthfully that there are some standing here now who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, for some of you, maybe this is a familiar passage. For others, this is brand new. So I want to kind of take you through it a little bit here. And, and today, we're actually going to be kind of brief in the teaching because we're wrapping up a little, a, a small section and, and we're going to focus on the application a lot today. But uh, again, one principle of Scripture is anytime you have a story in Scripture that's also told in other places, it's helpful to look in the other places. And for us, it's helpful because this is in uh, the book of Luke, which is one of the four Gospels, or, and Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in this, this is one of the stories that's also told in the book of Matthew and in the book of Mark. Now, we're not going to look at all three and compare them today, but I'm going to compile them for you and retell this, adding a few of the extra details so that we can then understand. But basically how it starts is Jesus asks his disciples and says, well, okay, so you've seen me perform some miracles. I've communicated who I am. You've, You've been with me a while now. So what's the word on the street? What are people saying about me? And, and just previously, uh, the week or a couple days before or something, he sent them out and, and the disciples were out doing ministry without Jesus. And they came back. So he said, what's the report? What do people think about me? What do they say? And, and compiling them all, they say, some say, well, you're, you're one of the prophets of old, risen again. Like, you're, you're Moses. Or some say you're Elijah. Some say even John the Baptist. Now, all those people at this time of Jesus' life are dead. So they're saying you're coming either, probably not actually believing these people were risen from the dead, but uh, he's coming in the spirit of Moses or in the spirit of Elijah or in the spirit of John the Baptist. That there's something going on here, that there's something about Jesus. Now, what's the significance of those people? Next week, actually, we're going to look a little deeper into that. But so you know, uh, Moses essentially represents the law. Moses was the one who led Israel out of Egypt when they were in slavery and And Moses is the one through whom God gave the Ten Commandments, and so the law came to Moses. He's known as one of the founders of the nation of Israel. So when Moses is mentioned, the the law aspect would come to mind. And what was the law about? Now, the law, despite what people might think, is not God's way of controlling his people. So there's there's this thought that, well, the reason the Bible has rules is because God just wants to control his followers. Actually, what the law is supposed to do is to point people to the character and nature of God. If we lived out the law of God perfectly, we would become a lot more loving, gracious, selfless, um, kind of life-giving community. And that's really what the law, when it's taken in its fullness, does. It's very life-giving. It's actually not life-taking. But we've misunderstood it, and we bring in our own selfishness, and we bring in our own selfish desires, and and then we, we... can imperfectly follow it, and so we stumble, and it becomes just this burdensome thing for us. But so the law, by mentioning Moses, saying like, well, you're like one who's bringing us back to pointing us to the nature and character of who God is. Now, the other thing about the law is it also reminds the nation of Israel time and time again that they fall short and need a Savior. And, And so sometimes we can think, well, when I look at instructions from God, it just becomes burdensome and I feel like I had a terrible week because I couldn't follow any of these rules. Well, or as one a pastor friend who wrote a book he, uh, about the good news, he actually talks about if you're having a good week 
or a bad week based on whether you follow God's rules, maybe you're missing the point. In fact, he met with someone in his congregation who, he, who said, oh, I had a terrible week. He goes, why do you have a terrible week? He said, well, because I struggle with uh, chewing tobacco. I'm addicted to it. And this week I kind of fell back and I, and I chewed tobacco. And he said, okay, so that gives you a bad week? And so what's a good week? He goes, well, when I don't chew tobacco. He's like, that's it? That's your good week, bad week? And, and he had him kind of relook at the law and say, instead, why don't you think of it this way? The, the weeks when you are able to not give in to that addiction, you can then see it as gratefulness that God is shaping and tra- transforming your life and freeing you from that. And the weeks when you stumble and fail, you can actually be grateful that you're in need of a Savior and you have one. And, and so sometimes when we base our whole ups and downs on the law and we put the burden on ourselves and not on our God, we miss the point. And so Moses, when they represent him, they say it's the law. Now Elijah represents the prophets. The role of the prophets was to turn people's hearts back to this God that they weren't following. So when he says, so they say, maybe some say you're Moses, some say you're like Elijah, but whatever it is, you're pointing our hearts back to God. Now Elijah in particular was also known as one who would usher in the messianic age or the time when God would come again and establish his kingdom on earth once again. So there's all these thoughts about Jesus. Now Jesus then says to him, okay, great, that's the word on the street. You've been with me, now what do you think? And Peter steps up and he says, well, I think you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're God in flesh. He's come to redeem and restore your broken world. And Jesus says, you're right, Peter. Blessed are you for coming to this knowledge of the truth. And then right after that, Jesus then, when we put the stories together, says this. Okay, I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. I am the one you're waiting for. You are right. That's who I am. Now I need to tell you, the plan from here is this. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be crucified. And I'll raise again on the third day. Now that was radically shocking to the Jewish audience. Because they were waiting for the Messiah to come and to conquer the Romans. He should raise up an army and and get rid of the Roman Empire. That's what they were waiting for. Once and for all, we'll have freedom. So they say, you're the one. You've proven it. He goes, you're right. Now our own people are going to hand me over and kill me. And we find in Matthew chapter 16, Peter takes Jesus aside. He puts his arm around him. He goes, Jesus, I, hold on a second. Hey guys, wait. Just, I, I need to talk to God for a minute. Okay, so, so God, um, I know you said you're going to be handed over and stuff. But Peter looked at Jesus and says, but I want you to know, like, that will never happen. Because they will have to get through me before they get to you. I will never let that happen. Don't worry, Jesus, I have your back. You're not getting handed over and killed. That would seem to be pretty encouraging if you're a leader, to have someone like that. Jesus then looks at Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. Now isn't that encouraging? Wouldn't it be great? Like, Get behind me, Satan, is what he says to Peter. Not even like, get behind me, you demon. I mean, he goes all the way to Satan on him. He's like, you just, and he says, because Peter, you don't get it. You're thinking in human terms. But I'm not coming on your agenda. I'm not doing things your way. I have a different plan. So, Peter, I appreciate your passion. Great. Let's bottle that up a little bit. But you're off track. Because it's all about your plans, not mine. Get behind me and listen. 
So that's how the story's going. And that's why then right after that, Jesus says, now let me explain to you what real discipleship looks like. If you want to follow me, you need to be willing to deny yourself to take up your cross and follow me. And then Jesus gets into a series of statements that all are reinforcing the same thought. And so I want to take the rest of our time actually focusing more on those three statements of discipleship than the first half of the story. But we have to understand the first half of today is essential for the second half to matter. Because if Jesus Christ is not Son of God sent to earth, if he is not who he claimed to be, then the second part is impossible. Who would want to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow an imposter? So Jesus needed to establish this. You understand who I am. Yes, I'm God in flesh. I'm sent to you. I am the Messiah. Once you understand that, now I can talk to you about what it means to follow me. And so let's never mix the order of discipleship to start to follow a God, but we're not really sure who we... We want to anchor and root our lives in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, not in the rules of how to follow him. We want to anchor it in a life to, to know that God comes to love us and to restore us and redeem us and give us life. When we're rooted and anchored in who Christ is, then following him flows out of that. You tracking with me there? So Jesus wanted them to know, start with who I am before I can even get what it means to follow. So what does it mean to follow? Let's look at this. Because this part only makes sense if we understand who Jesus is. We establish that. And then he says, so if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Now let's talk about this for a minute. In the Roman world, the cross was used for crucifixion. It was invented by the Romans. What a great invention. <laughs> and it was generally used to suppress uprisings. It was generally used for those who were rebellious against Rome. It was a, as a way to say, hey, if you are causing a rebellion, this is your fate that you can expect. Now, the thing about a cross, though, it could not be used, a crucifixion could not be used on a Roman citizen. So even if you were a rebel of the, the state of Rome, but if you were a Roman citizen, they would just lop your head off. They wouldn't put you on a cross. So it was a lot better. Um, so, but, so Jesus, by saying, take up your cross and follow me, is actually establishing and, and saying something even deeper than just that. And to his disciples, they would have heard it and say, wait, 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 who would ever want to take a cross? Jesus, do you know what that's used for? Do you know what even that says? You're going to be mocked. You're going to be ridiculed. You're, at, you're saying that you're giving up your rights of the citizen of Rome. You're saying you don't even belong to Rome, which I think is the beginning of what this is actually saying. Taking up your cross, and he says take it up daily, by the way. We can't take up our cross. So he's not talking about being crucified, because you can only do that once. So he says take up your cross daily. Have a daily reminder of where your citizenship actually lies. Which kingdom do you belong to? Jesus is saying you need to de deny being a part of the kingdom of Rome if you're going to be a part of me. Now, um, how many of you are king part of the kingdom of Rome? Anyone? Okay. I actually haven't once in my life desired that, to be honest with you. I haven't needed to be a, a part of the kingdom of Rome even once. But what are the kingdoms that we desire to be a part of? What are the kingdoms in which you are finding your security in. Is it the kingdom of no, North Coastal County, San Diego? 
What, and, and you want the rights of this kingdom? What's the rights of the kingdom of living here? Good weather, right? Good surf, rising home prices, high taxes. I mean, all these rights that are given to us by living here, right? These are the things that, well, we deserve this stuff. And that's why we live here. And, and, but is that what's giving you your identity? Is this is what you find your security in? Maybe for you, what citizen? Are you a citizen of your occupation? Is your life, does it rise and fall on what you do for a living? Does it rise and fall on how nice your house is? The car you drive? I know those seem like trivial matters and not a big deal. But what Jesus is starting with is, hey, the cross that we bear, being willing to bear the cross is saying, I identify with Christ and the kingdom that's given me my, my security, given me my identity, I deny that. I don't want that to be a part of who I am. I want to be a kingdom of heaven. Does that then mean that you have to leave North Coastal Can- uh, San Diego? No, it doesn't mean that. That would be a tragedy if every Christian left where we are. It would be a tragedy if every Christian quit their occupation and no longer did what you do for work. We need the kingdom of God to be active. Jesus is living it through us where you are today. But what is giving you your identity? What kingdom are you living for? Jesus essentially is saying, anyone who wants to follow me needs to pick up his cross daily. Which kingdom are you identifying with? He goes on then to, again, reinforce the same thought. Whoever wishes to save his life will actually lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now again, this is not to lose everything that you have, but rather to know that everything you have is nothing compared to Jesus. Paul writes that in in Philippians. He says, everything I've ever attained, everything I've gained, all my successes, all my wealth, and even all my poverty and all my failures, all of that, he says, is nothing compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. So Jesus is reinforcing that thought of, hey, taking up your cross, what kingdom do you belong to? What what gives you life? Is it your stuff? Is it your job? Is it your work? That's part of your life, but that is not giving you your life. Martin Luther said it this way. Martin Luther once said, I have held many things in my hands, and I've lost them all. But whatever I placed in God's hands, that I still possess. It's this idea of saying, God, I just want to surrender and whatever I just leave in your hands, it's amazing how I want to leave my life in your hands and you possess it, is what Jesus is saying. Now, some may actually lose their life for Christ, but most of us in this room will never do that. But Jesus says you want to gain life, lose yours. Lose that desire to only be all about you and build your kingdom. And as he said to Peter, it's not about doing it your way, Peter. This is God's plan. He goes on then and says, and anyone who's ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of him. Now, I've often read that verse and when I was a new Christian, I thought, that kind of, that's not a good one. I don't like that. It means anytime I'm embarrassed about being a Christian, that means Jesus is in heaven going like, ooh, uh-oh. Like, you know, he's sitting at the dinner table with God the Father and God the Father says, hey, how's your friend Ryan? He's like, oh, kind of embarrassed about that guy. And I always had this view that anytime I felt any embarrassment, that that was Jesus in heaven being embarrassed. And that's not the, the theme that's actually coming here. And thank God for that, is it? Has there ever been moments when you just kind of, I, I think of this, of like, 
I have my Bible. I'm sitting in Starbucks. I want to do some sermon prep. I'm like, I'm going to use my digital version because I don't want anyone to come over to me and say, oh, you're reading your Bible? Like, and then, wait, am I being ashamed? And so I've always thought of that way. But really what he's saying is anyone who is afraid to identify with me in my kingdom or anyone who will not identify with me in my kingdom, I won't identify with you. In other words, receive me, receive my ways, and you are part of the kingdom of God. And this is Hebraic language kind of using parallel and stuff like that. But so this is essentially Jesus' way of saying, like, are you identifying with me in my movement? Because if you do, you're in. You're in. I have you in my hands. Now, how great is that based on the previous two statements? Because I don't know about you, but I think I've had days where I don't know if I denied myself and took up my cross. I think I've had days where I kind of held on to my life and not the life of Christ. So Jesus says, no, identify with me and my movement and I'll hold you tight. You're part of this. Now, I want to address that ordinary thing that I started out with. This whole passage is not talking about, so all this means is that we need to be a bunch of Navy SEAL Christians. We need to be like the stand, you guys need to be just like the craziest, most radical, the most like out there Christians ever. You're going to do huge and big things if you're really a follower of Jesus. You need to be the ones who will like sell your house and live on the streets to, to feed people and take care of them. Now some of you, God might call you to that. And, and he, he really might. I, I know there's, there's been books, there was a book about 15 years ago about a group of people who sold everything. They lived in the inner city. They took care of each other. And the book challenged a lot of people like, well, maybe we should be doing that or we're not really denying ourselves. Then there was another book written by a guy who was a megachurch pastor. He quit his job and he took a blue-collar wage and said, I, I don't want to have that stuff anymore because radical life for Christ is, it needs to be like this radical calling and he'd be willing to give it all up. Now, is that a good thing? It's great that he followed the urgings that he believed God had for his life. But I believe that some of that we miss out on what Jesus really wants to do with the majority of us in the day in and day out. There's one uh, author, she gave in, that didn't give in, she tried out a lot of these Christian fads, these movements of people who said, I'm going to be so radical for the Lord that I'm going to give it all up. And she tried a several different things and even the new monastic movement, which is kind of like give up everything and live in poverty and she tried all of those, and, and she later writes now, she's about my age, but now she says this, I've come to the point where I'm not sure anymore just what God counts as radical. And I suspect that for me, getting up and doing the dishes when I'm short on sleep and patience is far more costly and necessitates more of a revolution in my heart than some of the more outwardly risky ways I've lived in the past. And so this is what I need right now. I need the courage to face an ordinary day, an afternoon with a colicky baby where I'm probably going to snap at my two-year-old and get annoyed with my noisy neighbor. Without despair, I need the bravery it takes to believe that a small life is still a meaningful life and the grace to know that even when I've done nothing that is powerful or bold or even interesting, that the Lord notices me and is fond of me and that that is enough. So this author, she writes, and what she's saying is, maybe radical discipleship for me is actually in the small things allowing Jesus to make a difference. 
Maybe something radical is how I treat my wife as a husband, how I treat my kids as a father, how I treat the people who work for me, how I treat the person who's uh, my, my barista or a pizza place that we use in town that gives really cheap $5 pizzas and screws it up every single week. How you screw up a $5 pizza that you know, like you just make a bunch of them, but you still find a way. I'm not telling you which place, okay? You're already judging me for eating there when there's better pizza places. But how we treat them, even though last week I ordered this Hawaiian pizza... And I got home with it, and seriously, I got home with the Hawaiian pizza, and the middle was like mushy. It was just, and I, I thought someone dumped baby food in the middle of it. And I thought, what in the world? So I called them, and they said, we ran out of pineapple, so we bought some crushed pineapple and didn't strain it. They just dumped it in the middle of my... Okay, so... <laughs> so how I treat them in the little things is part of denying myself. It's part of losing my life for the sake of the kingdom. Because in the small things where Jesus shapes me and changes me, that's where the kingdom is made known. Those are the extraordinary lives in the ordinary things that Jesus changes. And so I think when Jesus gets to this passage and reminds us that if your life is built on me, when it's all about me as the king of, of the universe, the creator of the universe, and you understand that I am the Christ, the one sent for you, when that is your foundation, then you can deny the things that define you. You can deny the life that you're reaching for. And in the ordinary, everyday life, you can be extraordinary because the life lived through you is radical. And so instead of seeking after the next... Now, and, and again, I'm not saying if God calls you to something radical, God is, might be calling some of you to go live in a jungle somewhere and to serve the tribes there. He might. But a lot of you, he's calling you to go home and to say I'm sorry to your spouse. To go and to reach out to a neighbor who is maybe aging and, and needs some help. And for you to take the first step to say, is there anything I can do for you? Maybe that's the radical call of Jesus on your life today. And maybe some of you today need this radical call to give up that which you think is defining you, and it's your own religiosity. It's your own self-righteousness that Jesus is saying, I'm glad you desire me. I'm glad you're seeking after me. And don't quit doing that, but quit doing that thinking that that's the way to earn my favor. Just receive the kingdom I'm giving to you. It's not your plans. Peter, you had a great idea. Let's do it this way, Jesus. But Jesus says to Peter, no, you're thinking like a human. Transaction. Pay back what you earn or what you owe. Earn your, the love and acceptance of God. Work your way into the kingdom. Jesus says, no, 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 I'm coming and giving you all of it. Just release. Just accept. As we end here today, um, today we really wanted it to be more about our response. We've been doing kind of some deeper study with the history and all that the last few weeks, so we intentionally wanted to pull back a little this week and create some space where maybe for some of us we can just say, Jesus, we want our lives to be centered on you. We want to strip everything away and just turn back and say, God, we want this to be about 
and building our lives on you, our citizenship in heaven, taking up our cross and saying, we deny it all. And so I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. Because I believe that a belief in Jesus as the Messiah demands a response. If we really believe that Jesus is Messiah, that there's a response that he demands. And the, the response is that we, we shouldn't be people who are unchanged. But we need to submit to his kingdom and what he's doing. I love one author, Michael Horton, writes this. He says, so for me, I've learned to get on with my life with love and service, fully realizing that God already has the perfect service he requires of us in his son. And now my neighbor needs my imperfect help. See, one thing he's learned that for him, discipleship, radically following Jesus, is radically resting in the love of, of God, radically knowing where, how, what defines you, and then giving the imperfect love and service. Let that be a part of who you are and the life that you live. So as we end here now, I want to invite you to do this. And we're going to sing a couple songs. And let's just, in this place, let's just have a spirit of just surrender and focusing this church community on the person of Jesus. Let's just take a moment to say, we don't want it to be about some radical calling we don't want it to be about maybe the kingdom that you're building for yourself. We just want to check our hearts and go back to centering everything on who Jesus is and let him live his life through us. And so this morning as we end our time, I want to just invite you, we're going to take a moment to pray and take a moment to just surrender. And let's become a church centered on who Jesus is and the work that he does. And then when you're ready, join in and respond with, with song. So God, we thank you for this morning. And I thank you that you give us a radical calling, which is to give up, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, to give up the kingdoms that give us security and definition. And Lord, to find all of that in you every day. But Lord, forgive us for the times when we hear that calling and then make it only about what big things we can do instead of the big thing that you do every day through us. So Lord, I pray that in this place you give us the courage to follow you, the courage to deny ourselves, the courage to quit seeking after things that we think give life and to seek after you and trust that that's enough. And Lord, I pray that you keep shaping us and helping us be faithful in the little things. Help us to be radical when our kids have colic and when our neighbor's dogs bark. Help us to be radical when people around us annoy us. Help us to be radical in how we lead our homes, how we raise our kids, how we treat our parents. Lord, but let that all be centered on the radical work you've already done for us and the work you do in us. So now, Lord, we confess of every time when we try to take control and we try to be God and we don't trust you. And so now, as we surrender those things, we ask that you would receive our praise as we give you this time now. Amen.